This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Kirsty Melville here with you, and welcome to the History Listen, where today we go back 150 years and find some uncanny parallels to today. It's now been more than two years since we first got wind of an emerging pandemic. But 2020 wasn't the first time that fear of infection created harsh rules for travellers. May 30, 1876. I passed two government doctors to see if there was any bodily disease. The doctor has inspected us for vaccination and loaded up our baggage. For seagoing emigrants in the late 19th century, illness on board a vessel was to be avoided at all costs. People boarding the ships in England to come to Sydney would have been checked for their vaccination status and that vaccine would have been smallpox. People would have been checked for a rash that was a measles-like rash, infestation with parasites or lice, because body lice is known to transmit uh, typhus. Passed. Received our canvas bag and one tin plate, two spoons. The newly built Scottish clipper ship Samuel Plimsoll boasted a quick passage through the Southern Ocean to Sydney. And emigrants were keen to take the plunge. But the fear of shipboard illness was always present. Today on the History Listen, we hear the recollections of two diaries from the Plimsoll's voyages to New South Wales during the 1870s, both of which ended prematurely at Sydney's quarantine camp. Producer Ros Blewett visits the now-abandoned camp with the diaries in hand. One penned by 23-year-old miner Will Sayer, and the other, three years later, the recollections of young mother Elizabeth Albon. Friday, March 21, 1879. Diary of voyage from Plymouth to Sydney on the Samuel Plimsoll emigrant ship by E.F. Albon. Set sail Friday, June 2, 1876. Four o'clock in the morning, a steamboat towed us into the open sea about six miles from the shore. A tide was coming in. With the words of Will Sayer and Elizabeth Albon in my mind, I've come to the now abandoned quarantine camp at the entrance to Sydney Harbour. It's tucked into a cove beneath the majestic sandstone cliff tops of North Head. But this beautiful setting seems strangely at odds with the pain and suffering that was experienced here throughout the 19th century. Maritime historian Peter Hobbins is my guide. We're standing here on the shore of Spring Cove at Sydney's North Head, which is where the quarantine station for Sydney was for 150 years. And right above my head, is a beautiful carving left in 1879, marking the arrival and the quarantine of the ship Samuel Plimsoll. It was a beautiful clipper ship, famous in its day, but this carving also marks a tragedy. And it was a tragedy that many people who landed at the quarantine station faced. The death and the sickness of those who came on the long voyage to New South Wales on board sailing ships. set sail at six o'clock, began to feel bad for motion of vessel. Everything that was loose went flying all about the deck. We wished we had not come. 
ship like Samuel Plimsoll, for instance, you would find that they were actually designed mostly to pack in as much cargo as possible and get it home to England as quickly as possible. Carrying passengers was very much a secondary consideration and they were packed in wherever they could. But the design of the ship was good in some ways because it was fast, so it would take, instead of four to six months, a good voyage on the Samuel Plimsoll could take 70 or 80 days, so two and a half months, three months at the outmost, to go from Plymouth to Sydney, usually non-stop. But because the ship was sleek and long and slim, it also rolled a lot in poor weather, and every diary I've ever read of passengers on board Samuel Plimsoll refers to the dreadful seasickness that characterised the first few weeks of their voyage as they left England and sailed through the Bay of Biscay. They're frightened for their lives, basically, that the ship's going to sink. On a second day, we begin to feel it. It is something awful. Fishy is narrow and the mast is high, and all iron, so it makes her roll and tumble like a drunken man. But I was not sick above three or four times. My berth is number 62. The bed is very narrow, about 20 inches wide. There's a board betwixt each one, and it's about the size of a big coffin. They were packed in like sardines, on board a ship that was only as big as a suburban train carriage. I will now tell you how many souls there are on board. Immigrants, 415, and the crew, 45. Elizabeth Orbon's journey, three years later, was even more crowded. As recorded in the sandstone carving, Peter Hobbins explains. And the inscription, which was chiselled into the rock, says, ship, Samuel Plimsoll, 462 emigrants, arrived June 11th, 1879, John Howie. So John Howie was a stonemason from Scotland. And what we're looking at here is the record of an awful voyage. It was certainly an awful voyage for John Howie because his young son, William, had died a day before the ship arrived in Sydney Harbour. And one of the first things that he does is he gets up on a cliff ledge and starts chiseling out that message. Our bunks are all fitted up between decks, not private at all, side by side and just a curtain hung in front. Elizabeth Alban, like John Howie, was one of the steerage passengers who travelled in what was called tween decks or between the decks on board the Samuel Plimsoll. And in the middle of the ship was the married quarters, which is where the Alban family spent most of the journey. Passengers travelling on their own were separated from the families, but they also had complaints. None of the single men have had any fresh meat since the first day we set sail. I can tell you we are all teetotalers. There is nobody has any intoxicating drink, only the sick that the doctor orders to have it. Those that are very bad have brandy and some have wine. Alcohol was considered to be a medicinal substance, not a cure for diseases like measles and typhus. But there was growing awareness that cleanliness played a big part in keeping sickness at bay. Strict hygiene routines were instituted by the ship's doctor, who was often paid a bonus for every passenger who landed alive. Mustered at ten for inspection. Lots got turned back. Would not pass them. Not clean enough. Doctor and first mate inspected. Each man has to clean under his own bunk 
and take it in turns, five men out of every hundred, to scrape the deck. Then sand is thrown over and then scrubbed with a bath brick. Then well swept and disinfecting fluid thrown down. This has to be done every morning. They did know enough to know what was effective in some cases to remove the risk. So they knew that body lice was associated with typhus, for instance. Dr Catherine Weston has a special interest in the history of public health. Typhus as a disease is transmitted by a bacteria through a bite or the faeces of fleas or lice. So you can imagine in an overcrowded situation where there were a lot of fleas, there were lice biting people, faeces from the fleas could go into wounds or scratches that people had on their arms and infect the person that way, for instance. Monday, April 7th. A man was put in irons for refusing to do what doctor ordered, taken before captain, had the rules read to him, submitted and had the handcuffs taken off in the evening. The surgeon superintendent was not just a doctor. He was, in a sense, a GP to this community of people, assisted to some extent by the matron on board. But the surgeon superintendent also had to supervise all of these hygiene and sanitation measures, the cleaning, the airing, the scrubbing, uh, the laundry, inspections of individual immigrants to make sure that they were scrubbing up well enough. And in addition to that, the surgeon superintendent also looked to the spiritual and the moral guidance of his flock at the weekly church service on the ship's deck. The bell is ringing for church. The man who acts as parson is one of the immigrants. He has five pounds to be schoolmaster and read the church service every Sunday. The Irish men were singing songs all the time, at least they do every Sunday. They have mass every night. They all kneel round a long table and one kneels on top and acts as priest. It lasts them about half an hour and then they begin to sing and dance and then they fight before they go to bed. In addition to the risk of disease and shipwreck on the voyage to Australia, there was also plenty of opportunity to develop animosities and jealousies and arguments and discrimination against your fellow passengers. Some of that was to do with class and social pretensions, people believing that they were better than their fellow passengers. And so you see many of these concerns playing out in the diaries and the letters they left. Now, for a word about the London Cockneys, I don't know what to call them. Words will not express my mind. There is one in our mess. He's just a lad, came from school, but he is a contrary little devil. They think the countryman is dirt under his feet. I can hardly bear from cursing him sometimes. I don't know what they're going to do for a living. If you ask them what trade they are, they will say, oh, my boy, I can do any trade. They have no trade at all. Monday, April 14th. Doctor has put up a notice. Nurse wanted for hospital, none but experienced ones to apply. Doctor has his hands full. So many ill. One has applied for nurse's place but was rejected. Doctor does not consider she was experienced enough. Two married men not expected to live. God knows when we shall see land. There is fever on board. It only broke out yesterday and today. The one a single woman and the other a single man. 
both of them Irish. In the 1870s, the diagnosis of disease was much more about the individual and the sort of person they were, their class, their religion, their moral status, and that was believed to manifest in the symptoms that they displayed. The doctor told his brothers to cut all the air off his head, but they will not go near him, or dare not. They're frightened of the fever. He's praying to the Virgin Mary and crying all the time. The others are that frightened that they hardly come down to eat their meals and frightened to lie in bed. I wish you could see them saying their prayers. One boy not expected to live. Babies particularly are vulnerable. They, their immune system isn't fully developed and without vaccination they're at huge risk of anything contagious that's going around typhus and also scarlet fever and measles. These were diseases that killed quite literally thousands of children in bad years. And certainly many voyages to the colonies would have a handful, if not a dozen deaths from these common childhood diseases. And it was really the children who suffered. Children under 10 were, were by and large those who were likely to die on the voyage to Australia. And you'll find that any diary that records one of those trips will almost certainly mention the death and the funeral at sea of at least one child. Baby died this morning and was buried. Boson and Cook taken fever and put in hospital. Young couple with one child, all three in hospital with fever. Elizabeth Alban, or Fanny, to her friends. And she was pregnant. She was travelling with her husband, Alf, and several of their children. And she also observed the tragedy of dying children around her with alarm. In fact, one of her children almost died on the voyage as well and, and barely survived in the ship's hospital. Doctor has his hands full, so many ill. For parents like Elizabeth, the end of the journey couldn't come quick enough. But for other passengers, like Will Sayer, who'd so far avoided the fever and had never ventured outside his own county, there was excitement about the journey. July 15, 1876. The third mate caught a young shark. It was 20 feet long. The skin was as thick as an oak bark and two flying fish was caught that fell on the deck. There were some fish, they called them porpoise pigs. They were short, thick, fat ones, just like porket pigs. And they lived on small fish and the dolphins lived on the little fish and the sharks and whales lived on them. Getting near the equator line, that is going under the sun where it is very hot, twice as hot as ever I felt it before anywhere, hotter than standing before a puddling furnace. It's about 4,000 miles from England. The heat is intense. Stand upon your own shadow. Expect to cross the line tomorrow. One of the things that they do often refer to was what they call crossing the line, which means crossing the equator. And normally they would do this off the African coast as they came down towards the tip of Africa and then zipped across the bottom of the Indian Ocean towards Australia. And crossing the line was an ancient maritime tradition that was meant to celebrate a rite of passage. You know, you'd actually moved from the Northern Hemisphere into the Southern Hemisphere, which many, many people who grew up in Europe had never done before. And I know there's a, there's a lovely little um, celebration from 1878 on board the Samuel Plimsoll where the captain treated them all to a glass of beer. People are beginning to enjoy themselves now. 
One of the sailors has a violin and they have singing and dancing every night after sunset. There is no twilight here. As soon as the sun sets, it gets dark. But there is a beautiful moon now and it is a grand sight to see it shining on the waves. Some of the sailors are educated men and give splendid recitations. There was vessels all round us. It was the city of Perth laden with salt bound for Calcutta and the same day one named the Tritire bound to China with rails and chairs. Overtook and passed a vessel which started a week before us. It was a Dutch trader. It left London 12 days before Plimsoll, and we have passed many a one. When you read a lot of immigrants' diaries, uh, for particularly for people from the United Kingdom coming to the Australian colonies, you see many familiar patterns in their accounts. And one of the recurring topics was the frightful weather conditions. July 26. The sea has been very rough. The sailors had to take down the sails, all but four. The waves dashed over the forecastle and side. It blew us out, of course, a long way. Monday, May 12th. Fearful storm of wind, rain and lightning came on. Some of the sails were torn to pieces. Awful confusion downstairs, screaming and crying of women and children. Even the men were trembling. It was an awful night. The noise upstairs was dreadful. The bolt of one of the yard arms gave way with about 20 sailors on. It was a miracle they were not all washed into the sea. It was about half six in the morning as I stood washing me on deck. There was a lad blown overboard. It was about four yards from me where it happened. He was coming by the sheep pen and going towards the midship hatchway and the ship gave a very violent roll. And he ran against the side and caught hold of one of the stay sail ropes and it was slack. And as soon as he got hold of it, it snatched up and sent him like a bird flying. And there was a very big wave come from under the ship at the same time. I jumped on the ship's side and looked for him, but I never saw him. The two more men stood by me and they said they saw him. The man at the wheel threw over two life belts and one of the life boys, but had not a shadow of a chance. The sea was so very rough, they never lowered a lifeboat nor slackened speed. The bowman said it would go six miles before they could stop, so we went on and left him to it. He was 13 years of age turned. His name was Woolrich. The sea is very deep here. It looks black. <laughs> July 23rd. She is going like a bird flying. We've turned around the Cape of Good Hope. We are now straight for Sydney. They think we shall have good winds now up to Bass Strait. Saturday, May 31st. They are getting some of the things ready for landing, so expect we must be getting close to Sydney. August 20, 1876, Sydney Arbour. The entrance into the arbour is between two large rocks 
In fact, you cannot see the arbour and there are large rocks along the water's edge higher than those rocks at Plymouth. Could see land quite plain on both sides and trees going along very fast. The land looks beautiful. For a sailing ship creaking into Sydney Harbour at the end of a long voyage, there was a decision awaiting the captain and also the health officer of the port of Sydney as well. Should that ship go into quarantine or not? And as it came through Sydney heads, if the yellow flag of quarantine was flying above the ship's mast, the ship would turn right and head in to more just off Spring Cove, which is where the quarantine station was located. It's 13 weeks today since we left Plymouth. God knows when we shall land, for there is a fever on board. So we shall have to go into quarantine for at least three weeks. In the second half of the 19th century, we were understanding that people who were coming on ships could bring disease and that we needed to make sure that there was some physical distance and some time difference to allow us to be able to ensure that those people were cared for, but also that there were no outbreaks starting in Sydney that were going to cause a big problem to the colony. The decision to quarantine a ship coming into Sydney rested with several people. The surgeon superintendent on board was supposed to notify the captain if he believed there was a contagious or infectious disease on board the ship. The captain then had the responsibility to declare that and to fly the yellow flag so that the port health authorities knew that the ship was a potential risk to the colony. But also there was a health officer from Sydney who came out to greet each ship and to check the status of the passengers. So it could even be that both the surgeon and the captain felt the ship was healthy, but only when they entered Sydney Heads would the health officer say, sorry, you're going into quarantine. Our doctor has been in the small boat to meet the Sydney doctor and he has ordered us all into quarantine, taken in all the sails in readiness. Signal for pilot came on board about 12 o'clock. Steamer came and tugged us into quarantine grounds. All our bags, beds and mess tins to be taken with us. There is the yellow flag flying at the top of the royal mast. We've had fresh meat and potatoes, cabbage and pumpkins, melons, cauliflower. So I think we shall live like lords in a jail. We have had some splendid new milk, fresh meat, vegetables and Sydney bread today. For many passengers who'd spent, say, 70 or 80 days aboard one of these small, rolling, pitching sailing ships, seeing dry land and greenery and beaches and sunshine was a blessing. And they loved coming ashore. They could get fresh food. They could pick oysters off the rocks. They could have bread delivered from Sydney. A welcome stop at the expense of the shipping company for those who were healthy. Went ashore in small boats, got there just as it was getting dark. All our things were thrown together of a heap and had to be sorted out on the wet sands. And then we had to walk a mile and a half up a steep, rocky hill to carry all our bags and beds yourself. The baby and Edie had to be carried, so you may guess what sort of a pickle we were in. If they were exhausted from the voyage or exhausted from disease or if they were sick or they'd been in contact with the sick, then they had a very grim outlook ahead of them. Those who were sick might stay here for weeks, if not months, or alternatively, they could be some of those who permanently stayed at the quarantine station and were buried in one of its three graveyards. 
This morning, the sailors have got orders to wash everything, and we have to wash all ours tomorrow. No dirty clothes are to land. They are to be burnt on the quarantine land. They also knew from plague times that burning things like bedding and so on was actually effective in reducing the risk of that disease spreading further in villages and so on. So it's understandable that they might have looked at that as a way to clean their ship. The ship had to keep us seven clear days after entering the harbour, and Sundays are not counted. So we shall tread on land for the first time since we left Plymouth. And those people came ashore here, just at the entrance to Sydney Harbour, onto a beach that for some was a pleasure ground and for others was a place of doom and despair. We now begin to make our miserable life happy. But you know, all the comforts in the world are nothing when liberty is denied. They were kept isolated until they were deemed to be uh, safe to enter the colony. And this didn't matter whether you were rich or poor. It did cause some concern by some of the richer people who didn't think the facilities were quite good enough for them at the quarantine station. Just like a barracks the place was, there were four large rooms built separate, but worse than the ship. Inside the ship, you could put your curtain up and be a little private, but here your beds lay side by side, touching one another. This is 10th day of being in quarantine. Doctors said the single men should have three hours rowing in the boats for exercise. There is such an abundance of mackerel, we can see them come up in swarms by hundreds. This morning, King and another in our mess got up at six o'clock and began to fish, and they caught 43 before eight, and we had them for breakfast. They are splendid. After two weeks, a steamer came for three mornings to take people on shore to get employment, brought them back at four o'clock. There is a little more sign of landing tomorrow, for the sailors are bringing all the marriage people's boxes of luggage on board again, and the commissioners have been on the quarantine land this morning and said we should go up tomorrow. August 29, 1876. We've come up the harbour this afternoon and we've passed one of the doctors and the board of commissioners, so we shall land in the morning. Land ho, about half past five. There was such a rush up on deck, men, women and children. We finally landed at Circular Quay on Friday, June the 27th, 1879, and we're very thankful for it. Goodbye, and God bless you all. Elizabeth Alban. For the diaries that do stop on arrival, we're left with that question, what happened afterwards? Who was this person? What life did they make for themselves in Australia? Did they go back to Europe or did they prosper here or did they live a, a terrible life and die a couple of years after arrival? For many people, it was actually just the beginning of the rest of their lives. And they reinvented themselves. They often learned to write on board the ship. Uh, they developed their trades when they got here. They found that their businesses prospered or others moved from town to town but they all had a story to tell after they arrived. And it's trying to track down those stories and the ultimate fate of these people and the legacies that they left for future generations that's part of the thrill of history and of unpacking these voyages to Australia in perilous times.
Samuel Plimsoll, Sales to Quarantine, was produced by Ros Blewett. The sound engineer was John Jacobs. Readings were by Chantelle Jamison and Jack Crumlin. And for more program details, just check out the History Listen webpage. I'm Kirsty Melville. Thanks for your company. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.